Welcome to the Clipping Chains podcast from clippingchains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. We're doing it together. We're having a great time. This is your host, Chad Andrews. And hi, how are you? Hey guys, it's just me today. This is episode 58, I believe. And I'm going to be answering your questions. You ask some questions. I have some answers. Maybe, maybe not. We're going to be doing that. It's going to be fun. What are we talking about today? Right up front, I had a good one I know is on the mind of a lot of you guys. A lot of folks have come to this platform as new investors. Maybe all the things I've been saying is kind of, you know, embedding in your brain and getting you all excited about investing and, and a, a new life one day and all this stuff. And you're like, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's, let's buy some stocks. Let's buy some index funds. And then, damn it, what happened? The market's been down like 20%, 30%. This guy is full of it. Like, this is not cool, man. Like, if I'd have just kept my money under my mattress like I was doing in 2019, I'd be in better shape. All true. So are new investors part of a quote-unquote unlucky cohort that won't achieve financial independence in the often cited timelines? Are you guys getting hosed by people like me who had everything on their side in the previous decade? We rode this big wave of bull markets, and now things are different, and folks are understandably concerned. All right? It's tax season. Should you hire a tax professional? Maybe, maybe not. And if so, how would you find one? We'll tackle that. What about all these public sector retirement accounts? 457s, 403Bs, just numbers and numbers and numbers. Who knows what these things are, how well they work for us? Well, we've got a question on that. And I don't have an answer, but I have a friend who does. All right, so stay tuned. Roth conversions, once again, uh, for something that makes people's eyes glaze over faster than nothing else in the world. I keep getting questions about the Roth conversion, and I'm glad because I want people to understand how powerful this process can be. So today's question is, should I make a Roth conversion now or just go ahead and contribute to a Roth IRA instead? And then finally, I'd be remiss not to talk about the recent bank runs and the instability in financial markets. Ooh, that's got everybody on the edge of their seats. But we'll talk about it. I'm feeling okay. I'm feeling pretty good. And I'll tell you why. Let's do our quick administrative tasks real quick. I want to thank David from the bottom of my heart. He is my latest subscriber over at Buy Me A Coffee. That is the platform I use to fund this show. Guys, I want to be honest with you. My costs are increasing. It is becoming more and more expensive to run this platform, which is good news. Um, as more of you guys show up and I get more subscribers, things like email newsletters, they charge me more because more of you guys are showing up and they're like, hey, um, you're going to have to pay more for that, buddy. And so I am. Um, so as soon as things start looking good in the financial world for clipping chains, I get more costs and I'm back in the hole again. So everything you guys do there helps me so, so much. So if you guys are enjoying this content, if I've helped you in any way, as little as a dollar a month, $10 a year, or just a one-time donation, five bucks, if you got it, that goes so far, guys. And I can't thank you enough for those contributions. So you have a link in your show notes for buying me a coffee. 
You shouldn't have to look far to find it. That helps a ton. Another note on the questions. I'm going to be doing these anonymous from now on. I've had enough folks ask me to keep their question anonymous. So I'm just going to do that across the board instead of, um, you know, wondering if folks want to be anonymous or not. It's money. I get it. Let's just keep it anonymous. From now on, I'll be using the first letter of the first name only. So I had a couple of people whose names started with a J, which is kind of confusing. Is that a J-A-Y or is it just uh, J short for Jericho? You guys will have to keep wondering. But that's what I'm going to do from now on, first letter only of the first name. And then finally, my standard disclaimer, I have to put right up front. I know it annoys you guys, but I have to do it. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a financial professional. Everything here is for entertainment only. We're just having a good time. And um, I'm just talking about things I would do myself. It's just my lived experience. And so do not consider this financial advice, please. Okay, with that said, without further ado, let's jump right into these questions this week. And guys, keep them coming. As a reminder, if you want to ask questions, you need to be on my email newsletter list. That is what I use to solicit questions for these Q&A episodes. Plus, the newsletter is fun. I have a really fun time making it each week. There's a lot of content you do not get on this podcast or on the website that is only for newsletter subscribers. There's a link there in your show notes to get the newsletter. And let's do this, all right? Okay, this first one comes from B, who asked to remain anonymous. And this is really fundamental, so I wanted to put this right up front. And B sent me this quite long email. I'm not going to read the entire thing. So she's a recent investor. I believe she started investing in 2020. And as you guys probably know, by the end of 2021, the market began what seems like a relentless decline and has continued and has remained it depressed values since then. And so we're, you know, the better way through three months of 2023, the market is not anywhere near its old all-time highs that we achieved back in late 2021. So what gives? And so B really likes this concept of financial independence, but she's looking at these charts and saying, hey, you know, I'm expecting 7% yearly growth. I'm not getting that. So all these timelines that people always throw around, like, hey, you could be retired in 10 years, don't feel like they apply to me. And so am I part of some unlucky cohort? And I'll read directly here. She says, I don't understand why so many FI content creators say that anyone can reach FI in a short time frame at certain savings rates without paying much, if any, attention to being lucky in the timing of one's investing. True. And she goes on to say, again, I'm quoting, is the often cited 10-year time frame for FI just too short to rely on an average amount of market growth? Okay, these are all important questions, and I'm glad she asked. So again, I want to be crystal clear on this. I've tried to be crystal clear on this in the past, but I'm going to do it again. That 7% number that's often thrown around is absolutely a long-term average. One should not expect a 7% return over any sort of short time frame, i.e. less than 10 years. I would say we're talking a multi-decade time frame to get that sort of average, right? My personal rate of return, I just looked actually yesterday, 
in Vanguard, when I logged on to do some other things, my personal rate of return in that platform has been 9.5%. And part of her understandable frustration probably revolves around the undeniable fact that so many fire bloggers, myself included, if you want to put me in that camp, did the bulk or entirety of their investing during the great bull market run, I'll put that in capitalized because it was great, of 2009 to 2021, right? A lot of fire bloggers either retired or made the bulk of their money, if not the entirety of their money, during that very sweet period from 2009 to 2021. That was the best bull market run pretty much ever. A lot of us got above average returns. And so if I would have looked at my Vanguard account prior to the end of 2021, man, I almost certainly would have had easily double-digit average returns over that 10-year window. So yes, this does get down to investment returns over a given period, which is also called the sequence of returns. It is true that you can have a bunch of great years in a row, and it's also true that you can have a bunch of crappy years in a row, but if looking at a wide enough time frame, you end up somewhere around that 7 to 10% long-term average. Again, that also uh, depends on whether you're taking into account inflation and you're adjusting those numbers for inflation. So that's one thing to keep in mind. My first response to be, and for anyone else who's thinking about this, is to not be discouraged. This is all very normal. These are normal cycles. Uh, the world's not falling apart. Capitalism is not ending. None of that is happening. These are very normal cycles. And we're in a bear market, right? So to remind you, a bear market is arbitrarily defined as when we fall at least 20% from previous highs. And so our previous highs were right at the end of 2021. We fell 20% into 2020, and we've been bouncing around there ever since. The good news, and I've tried to find a link to this original study, and I haven't yet, but I'll find something for you guys, hopefully by the time this goes live, is that according to a study by Wells Fargo Investment Institute, returns in the S&P 500 in the 12 months following the end of a bear market have averaged 43.4%. So that's important. In the 12 months following the end of a bear market, returns average 43.4%. So you may have heard this Jimmy Cliff song, you know, the harder they come, the harder they fall. That's true. When stocks get wildly overvalued, they crash pretty hard. We see that with individual companies all the time. But the inverse is also true, at least on the macro level. When you have a fall, it's usually ripe for very uh, pronounced growth following that. When people get excited, they start feeling warm and fuzzy about the market again. When they feel like the uh, storm clouds have passed, everyone comes out to play. And so oftentimes you have the inverse coming out of a bear market of that Jimmy Cliff narrative. And it's actually the harder they fall, the harder they come, right? And so this is pretty typical. You can go and look. And I honestly want you to look at the S&P 500 charts. I want you to study this. The reason I feel so comfortable and my wife and I feel so comfortable about investing in the stock market is because we didn't just read one book or read a couple blog posts and be like, cool, let's do it. We've taken the time to educate ourselves and I want you to do the same. So stare at these charts. Look at the bear markets of the past. Look at the recessions of the past and you will see a trend that once we get to that trough, the market often comes roaring back. So it's important to understand that right now, 
Everyone always says this, but it's true. You're buying stocks on discount, right? If you were okay buying stocks in late 2021 while they were overvalued, you should feel a lot better about how many shares you're getting for the same dollar when it's depressed by almost 20%. And so again, let's talk about the duration of bear markets. How long can we expect this to last? Most bear markets, if we define it from the peak to the trough, last 1.5 to 2 years, but may take over 5 years on average to match previous highs. So we're talking peak to peak. It could take 5 years or more just to get back to our old peak. If we get a really bad recession or, heaven forbid, a depression, it's 10 or more years for that to resolve itself. So the good news is we may have had the trough back in late September or October of 2022. But hard to say, right? Have we hit the trough on this bear market? We'll only know in hindsight. We can't say that for now. I can't say that. Uh, Me, I, I could actually envision it going a little lower and getting a new trough sometime this year. If what we're looking at, this bear market started in early 2022, we're already over, let's see, 15 months into it. So, you know, we could be very well coming out of this soon. And then you might have those, on average, very high returns coming out of the bear market. So you're buying all these shares on discount and you're setting a ripe stage for these to grow. That's why bear markets are very, very good for new investors, just like B. She could have a much stronger portfolio over time by investing now, buying shares on discount, and setting the stage for a lot of growth when we come out of this bear market, which I believe we inevitably will. Now, for the folks who need to worry, are those either nearing, at, or already retired? Because they're either having to sell more shares to get the same amount of dollars to fund their life, or they were just about to pull the trigger on retirement and now have to wait till we claw our way back out of this hole to get to those numbers they're aiming for for financial independence or retirement. So my advice is the same as it always is. I would use a dollar cost average approach to investing for those who can. If you have regular income and you're only spending a portion of that, I would drip the rest into your investments every other week or once a month, whatever works for you. If it's a 401k, that happens automatically probably every other week. If it's brokerage accounts, maybe you want to do that once a month or once a week, whatever works for you. But invest through all market conditions and avoid at all costs market timing. Because you, yes, you are not that smart and you're not that lucky. A lot of people think they can time the market and that they know enough about the market to time it. You are not that smart and you're not that lucky. I'm not that smart. I'm not that lucky and I know it. So I just take a lazy dollar cost average approach. I buy the market as a whole. We'll talk about buying the market as a whole in another question coming up on this episode. And that's it. So this is actually fairly good news for you early investors. I know it is demoralizing. You think you're not going to get to your targets in time. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But understand that those targets, yeah, I agree. I don't think people should be throwing around those numbers like you will retire in 10 years. There are no absolutes. If you have average returns and average conditions, whatever that means, you can retire in an average amount of time. But the world doesn't work in averages. But if you give it long enough, you get this reversion to the mean effect. So again, we're doing this for the long term. We can't get too itchy on the short term. B, I hope that helps. Stick to it. Keep investing. 
Understand that those investments may, in the short term, lose money, and that's okay. We know that happens. Study these past events. Study 2008. Study the dot-com. Study the 70s and the late 60s. Those were very long, prolonged periods of poor or limited growth. You got to be okay with that. Understand that stuff. And the more you spend time understanding this stuff, the more prepared you will be to steel yourself against the harder times that inevitably will come again. This is not the last one. I hope that helps. Okay, this next question comes from Jay. And that's not J-A-Y, that's just, I'm using the letter J, which is the first letter of his name. And Jay goes on to say that my tax situation has gotten more complicated over the years. He's got multiple properties, rental income, retirement, other investments. And he feels like he's at this point where he needs some help. I guess he's been doing his own taxes for years. I understand that. I was in the same boat. But he thinks he could maybe use some help on the tax planning and optimization services. He says, do you have any experience working with a financial professional for tax purposes or suggestions on finding one? So the short answer is I do. In my last two years of my corporate career, my wife and I also felt like our taxes were getting too complex. I had some equity awards that were coming from the company. I wasn't really sure how they were taxed, whether taxes had been withheld. I didn't want to pay too much or not pay enough and get into trouble. So I asked around. I had a friend recommend me a CPA. And honestly, it was great. I don't, I don't remember what I paid. It was maybe a couple hundred bucks. We went down there and we dumped off a bunch of documents. He called two weeks later. Everything was done. It was easy. So the short answer is yes. We happily paid someone else to do our taxes for a couple of years. I believe it was the tax year 2019 and 2020. And I'd say money well spent, exclamation point. In general, this is my philosophy on just about anything, as you guys probably know. I'd almost always say, don't hesitate to employ dollars wherever you can improve your life. And so if taxes are just giving you a major headache and it's going to take too much time to do them or you don't understand what you're doing, it's not that expensive to go ahead and have someone do them for you. I know some big financial nerds and real optimizers and frugal people will um, you know, shudder at this. Like, why pay $200 for something you could do yourself? Hey, I understand that. I'm back to doing my own taxes now because my tax situation is fairly simple. Now, the second part of Jay's question is, do I have any suggestions on finding one? Um, not really. Like I said, we talked to some friends. They had a guy they recommended who they'd been using for over a decade. It was really that quick and dirty. Now, I did go ahead and look up a few tips and tricks on finding someone to help with your taxes. I've got a link in your show notes for an IRS resource, and they suggest you at least want to find someone who has a preparer tax identification number, or PTIN, which is relatively easy to get. And you can search their database to find if any folks in your area have that number. And I'm sure there will be many if you live in a city. Now, preferably, you want to find a certified public accountant or a CPA. You've probably heard that term. A licensed attorney or an enrolled agent, EA. 
Again, you can search for those. I believe maybe using this IRS database, but if not, you know, Google's your friend, as with many things. Some red flags to consider. I would definitely run away from anyone who says their fee is based on the size of your refund or who says they can get you a bigger refund than the next guy. Those are red flags. In general, if you guys know anything about taxes, if you're getting huge refunds, that means you've been giving the government an interest-free loan throughout the year and you've been overpaying on your taxes. So there are some resources. I'm not going to get off the deep end here today. Ideally, at the end of the year, you neither owe nor are owed. You pay right around zero. That would be the ideal situation where you're managing your taxes well. If you're getting huge refunds, again, you're paying too much throughout the year and you could dial back or increase your withholding, whatever you need to do to come around to that zero. So any tax professional who's saying, I will get you the biggest refund. Well, you know, that may be dodgy. <laughs> so that's all I really have. Like I said, yes, I do support getting a CPA or someone to do your taxes. If that money is going to alleviate stress in your life and make your life better, that, my friends, is value spending. I would look for someone who at least has one of these PTIN, preparer tax identification number, ideally a certified public accountant, licensed attorney, or enrolled agent. Google is your friend, should help you find some, or just ask around. So Jay, I hope that helps. And that's all I got on that one. All right, all right, let's move on. This next one comes from R. He is an employee at a hospital, so he's in the public sector. And he says, I have access to both a 403B and 457B through his work. So these are those public sector retirement accounts. And he's looking at the two and he goes, you know, honestly, besides the employer match, which he gets for the 403B, he says, I'm not sure what the difference is. What what are these two things? I don't get it. They're both pre-tax money. They have roughly the same annual contribution limit. And they both have penalties if accessed before standard retirement age. So what gives? And he says, should I max out one before investing in the other? Can I max out both at the same time? And this is, what is the 457B and why does it even exist? And when I read this, I glazed over like so many of you before me because I never worked in the public sector world. I have a very fundamental understanding of these accounts myself, and I did not feel prepared to answer them. But I know someone who is, and that is my friend, the Frugal Professor, over at thefrugalprofessor.com. We've talked before on this podcast. I've had him on for a couple interviews. And this guy has public retirement accounts coursing through his veins, okay? <laughs> and so here's what he had to say. I reached out to him, and he got back to me very quickly. Similar to R, I have access to a 401A plus 403B plus 457B. It's a great thing. Because R has access to a 403B plus 457, this means that he has twice the amount of tax advantage space as someone working in the private sector who only has access to the standard 401k as we know it. Okay, so you guys are in good shape if you have both of these. So 457s have a more flexible withdrawal schedules than 403b or 401ks. You can withdraw at any time 
not just after age 59 and a half. And he's got a link there talking about that. And given this, he says he would fund it before a 403B if you have the option. So Frugal Professor is saying if you have the option to, fund a 457 first and then a 403B. Now, he goes on to say that some employers require funding the 403B before the 457. Who knows? I'm shrugging my shoulders right now as we speak. And he says, ours used to be like this, but recently lifted this restriction. So you'll have to check on your own employer to see which one of these you can fund first. Maybe, maybe not. Another bullet point. He says, a 457B is really just another type of retirement account for those in government or nonprofit space. And he works in a university, for example. So really, they're just retirement accounts. They're just different types of retirement accounts that aren't available to us private sector folks. And then as usual with like many retirement accounts, he says you really need to give some serious thought to Roth versus traditional for these accounts. Like are you contributing pre-tax or post-tax money? And there are cons and pros to both of those, of course. We've talked about that before, and I'm not going to go into that today. So, R, I hope that helps. And we'll move on to the next one. All right. We have another J. That's not J-A-Y. It's just another guy with a name that starts with a J. And he is curious about Roth conversions. And so this is something we've talked a lot about in the past. This is a way to, in essence, spend retirement money early. A lot of uh, nuts and bolts here, but we'll try and tackle this as um, simply as possible. Jay has a small amount, about $3,000-ish, so not a whole lot there, sitting in an old traditional IRA, and he is considering rolling it into a Roth IRA. So that would be your Roth conversion from traditional to Roth. And he's curious about the tax implications being in the 24% tax bracket. And he goes on to say, would that amount be worth rolling over or should I just start fresh contributing to a Roth IRA? Well, one thing I think we should all be very, very excited about is that I have updated my 2023 tax brackets. And I've got that as a link in your show notes. I find it highly useful. I look at it all year long. I mean, why not, right? You want to put that right up next to your hangboard, next to your motivational posters. It is that exciting. And so I've got ordinary tax rate and capital gains tax rate. Those are long-term tax rates on the capital gains. Exciting stuff, guys. It's really exciting stuff. So Jay is sitting in a pretty high tax bracket. I don't know if he's individual or married filing jointly. Doesn't matter pretty high tax rate. And so one thing about the Roth conversions we need to understand is that anything you convert is 100% taxable as ordinary income. And so that's why I've always said you want to do this when you're in a low tax bracket environment. And for most people, there's no real rule here, but I would say for most people, that's going to be the 10 or 12% tax bracket. And so if you want to see how much money that is, you can look at the tax brackets. Basically, if you're married filing jointly, that would be making less than income up to about $89,450 in 2023. 
It's not about that. It's exactly that. So anything less than $89,450 for a couple who is filing as married, filing jointly, that would put you in the 12% tax bracket. And so if you convert any of this money, you're going to be paying your marginal rate. And so it's worth considering. Now, $3,000, I don't know. You know, that's not a big amount of money. So what did Jay is is honestly asking is, are there optimal times to convert traditional IRA funds to Roth and what might those scenarios be? Um, so like I've already alluded to, I would vote to wait. You know, if you expect to be in a lower tax bracket in the future, most people do if they're going to be retiring at some point, unless you are already spending the majority of the money you're making, right? So if you're making in the 24th, percent tax bracket and you're spending the majority of that money, well, when you retire, you'll probably keep that same standard of living and you would remain in that tax bracket. A lot of the fire people are making a lot more money than they're spending. So if they were to walk away from a job or take a sabbatical or whatever for a year, they would drop way low into a different tax bracket. That's what happened with my wife and I starting in 2021. Now, so if you drop into that 10 or 12% tax bracket, you could shuffle that money over and you would be taxed at a very low rate. Now, if Jay does a conversion now, he will pay his normal tax rate for the entirety of the conversion. And someone in retirement may pay effectively zero. So in that case, I'd just go ahead and make the Roth contribution now. But because he's in such a high tax bracket environment, I already wonder if he's over that Roth income limit. Again, I don't know exactly what the income is and whether this is individual or married filing jointly. So you might have to do a backdoor Roth if that's what you're interested in. In short, I'd say the optimal time, again, to make a Roth conversion is in any calendar year, you know, a tax calendar year, when you are in a low tax bracket environment. You know, for most people, that's going to be, again, in the 10 to 12% tax bracket. However, but because this is such a small amount of money, maybe it's better to go ahead and add $3,000 to your taxable income. That's kind of a drop in the bucket at that tax bracket of 24%, instead of trying to convert whatever that $3,000 will compound to in the future. Because if you just let it sit there in your traditional IRA, it may continue compounding for another 10 or 15 or 20 years and then you have to convert all of that later. So there really isn't a wrong answer. It's just kind of up to you, you know, and it's also a little bit of a uh, speculation on what future tax law will look like. And there's a lot we just don't know, right? If anything, I would expect taxes to go up. So yeah, maybe it's just worth going ahead and converting this small amount now. Because this is such a small amount of money, I don't think it's going to affect your bottom line a whole lot. So I've got an article about Roth conversions where you can get much more detail, and I would suggest starting there. Most people get glazed over by this stuff to begin with, so I think I'll call that one done. Jay, I think any answer with that amount of money is probably a good one. Up to you. Hope that helps. Okay, I'm just going to add a few highly uninformed comments about the um, Silicon Valley Bank situation. There's been plenty of news on this, and you should probably look almost anywhere else except here to have any sort of 
high-level understanding on this, but here's what I've gathered, and here's what I've always thought about. And we're talking about cash here, right? We're not talking about your investments. We're not talking about Vanguard or your brokerage accounts or your retirement accounts. We're talking about cash. And so cash accounts are one of the things I'm asked about the most by far, which is kind of depressing to me (laughs) because I was hoping to get people interested in other asset classes outside of just cash accounts. But I understand folks are always saving for houses or maybe you sold a business and need to park that cash in a place that's a little safer than the stock market. Anyway, so people are always asking about cash. And the one thing I've never really talked about, but my wife and I have in general taken into consideration, I will not say we've always done this, is that we've kept our cash accounts capped at $250,000, which is the amount you can be 100% insured for from the FDIC. Thanks for tuning in, all you guys who are international listeners, but I'm going to just talk to the Americans here real quick. So the FDIC, that is the federal government, will insure your money up to $250,000 in any bank. Now, when the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, a lot of people had way more money than that in. Actually, I've read that less than 1% of the customers at that bank were within that FDIC limit. So that's interesting. I heard Roku, that company, uh, you know, for TVs and things, had uh, $500 million in there, and they were all made whole. And so that ruffles a lot of feathers. Actually, a number of banks have failed in the last 10 years or since the great uh, financial crisis of 2008, and all of their depositors were made whole. We never heard about most of these because they were very small banks. And even for people who had over $250,000 in those banks, they were made whole. So this SVB event was not unprecedented, but this one made a lot of news because the people holding cash at that bank were big in the tech world, where well-known VC investors, um, you know, that sort of thing. So this made big waves. And then it became psychological, right? Once this thing gets reported on, everyone's sitting around talking to their friends, talking to their neighbors, saying, whoa, 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 you know, is my money at risk? I don't know. Let's not take any chances. Let's just go ahead and get that money out. And that starts to create cracks that are much more concerning in the banking system overall. So am I worried about this? No, I'm not. We, you know, we still hold cash in various accounts. Um, I do not believe we have cash over the FDIC limit anywhere. Actually, I know we don't, but we have in the past. When we sold our house in Denver, we had almost, I think, all the proceeds from that house in one single account kind of hanging out there in the breeze for not that long, about six months. So would we have lost that money if a bank failed? We could have lost anything over $250,000, but considering what's happened with the SVB event and some of these banking failures we didn't even hear about in the last 10 years, I highly doubt it. I won't go into the pros and cons of why the federal government should or should not be paying in excess of the FDIC insurance, other than to say they have. So the Fed will also have a little uh, tightrope to walk in terms of how they are going to keep balancing this idea of raising interest rates to curb inflation, but also we have to understand that the reason this bank and many others are now in tougher mm, water is that they've, you know, have not correctly modeled or understood that we could have the kind of rate hikes we've been having because it's not been that way for a long time. And so this is kind of 
catching everyone with their pants down in the banking world. And so, okay. Again, I don't know anything about this. I'm not a banker. I've talked to some who are. I have a couple of friends who are in this industry. And this is what I've gathered just from the reporting and just some private conversations with people who know a whole lot more than me. Bottom line, your cash is probably safe wherever it is. If you're worried, keep it under $250,000. You can always open more accounts to spread that cash across different accounts. No big deal there. But please don't go pulling all your money out of banks, you know, because once that that contagion and that fear catches on, then that really does start to affect the broader financial system. Okay, so those are my thoughts there. Okay. Okay, guys, that's all the questions I had for this week. Again, I want to remind you, if you have a question for the future, you'll want to get subscribed to my email newsletter where I solicit the questions for these shows. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great week. We'll all come together in jubilation soon.